This week on Investigating Pathways, I'm joined by Brett Kopp, a two-time founder who has founded Remind, the biggest messaging platform targeted towards connecting teachers, parents, and students with over 30 million users. And most recently, Brett has founded Homela, the easiest and most effective way to receive payments. Today, we talked through Brett's journey building a massive ed tech network and how he is applying those lessons to his second company. Hey, Brett, how are you? It's so nice to meet you. How are you doing? Doing well. Nice to meet you as well. Thank you for being here. So to start off with, for those listening who don't know who you are, could you tell me a little bit about who you are and what do you do? My identity. Yes. Um, my name is Brett and I am a serial entrepreneur. Um, if you were to Google me on the internet, you'd probably find that I started an education company called Remind.com which is sort of like Slack, but for schools, uh, if you're a younger person and or a parent, there's a high probability that you've used it before. We have about 30 million active teachers, students, and parents using it. Um, and so that was like the first decade of my adult life. I started when I was 19 and uh, we learned a lot from that. And now I've started my second company very quietly, which is called Omela, O-M-E-L-L-A, which makes it really easy for schools, clubs, nonprofits, coaches, small businesses even to collect money from large groups. Imagine if like Venmo and Google Forms had a baby and it was really, really simple and it was free. That's what we're building. Uh, and I currently live in Colorado with my wife, Courtney, and my 100 pound Swiss mountain dog, Nana. Oh, puppies. puppies. We have a little doggy as well. We nice. got at the beginning of COVID. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I want to start off with like your origin story, right? So could you tell me a little bit about your life as a kid leading up to going to college? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I was diagnosed with a bunch of learning disabilities in fifth grade, and I spent years feeling like an, an idiot, uh, which I now know I'm not, but it bred a lot of insecurity. If you look at like the emotional undercurrent of what not feeling smart is, it was insecurity and lack of confidence in myself. And um, school is just a grind for me. I was never very good at it. Uh, I couldn't focus. I clinically have ADD and I'm dyslexic which means that I'm the guy who, when you put a credit card in a credit card machine, it's always flipped or my L's are backwards. There's a bunch of other things with dyslexia that make things a little bit difficult for me, especially in education. And so I just struggled for a really long time and I got so frustrated with it that by the time I was a sophomore in college, I went to Michigan State and I studied agriculture. I basically had the, a path to choose, which is drop out and do who knows what, or build something that can help the other kids like me and help them not feel like I did. And that's when I ended up starting Remind. Uh, and I'm happy to go into that if you'd like, but that, that kind of started it all. I will say just to take a step back from that, though I struggled a lot, I had two parents who loved me unconditionally. Um, and I had like a ton of really, really wonderful opportunities. And I think that support system was a really big part of helping me identify what it is I wanted to do and why. Awesome. Could you tell me a little bit more about that support structure outside of your immediate family, Maybe at school, were there any teachers who were really influential? How did they help you out? Any of that stuff? Yes, there was. I mean, there was a ton of teachers, but there was really one. Like the whole company, Remind Now, has millions of users. And uh, we have about 70% of teachers in the United States that actively use it. And it all started with one teacher. Her name was Denise Whitefield. I, I still, in my phone, I have her as Miss Whitefield. And even though I'm a grown adult, I still call her Miss Whitefield. I can't help <laughs> it. And when people ask me, why she had such a big impact on me, it was not because she was the best at teaching me math or a content or curriculum. It's because she really cared about me. She was super patient and she helped me understand who I was. 
And so she, the undercurrent, the emotional undercurrent of that is giving me a lot of confidence um, to help me realize what it is I wanted to do in the world. And that, that really had a profound impact on me. And so that translated to later starting Remind, which is now this, you know, the company that I had alluded to before that impacts millions of teachers. And the first value of our company is teacher obsession, which uh, we believe more broadly that teachers provide some of the best leverage to help improve the education system. And so the whole company is built around helping people like them. Got it. So could you tell me a little bit more about this teacher? You know, how specifically you worked with her? Just very curious how you were able to, you know, sort of work through your problems with this support structure. Yeah, so I went to a, a really good public school in the Chicagoland area called Niles West. And we had study halls. Do you guys still have study halls in school? Is it a thing? No, not at my school. Really? Oh, wow. Um, what do you have instead? Just regular class? Yeah, we just have like seven straight classes in a day. When, do you have lunch or gym or a break? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have APE class uh, in freshman and sophomore years, and then we have a lunch break. But yeah, you just sort of do whatever you want during lunch, right? You just walk around the campus. Got it. Yeah, so back in the day, we had study hall where basically 50 students are in a single room with one teacher. You have to be silent and you're supposed to study or work, which for a person like me who has, I have a like reasonably good amount of energy right now, as you could tell, but imagine me a decade ago, I was like, you ever seen the movie Blubber? It's uh, with Robin Williams. I think it was with Robin Williams. It was like way before your time, but like it was this like thing that would bounce all off all these walls and be crazy and you couldn't control it. That was me. Like I had so much energy. Um, and so instead of me going to study hall, I would go to what's called an IEP manager, which was Miss Whitefield. And it was this very small um, classroom of probably four, three to four students who are sort of like me. So the ratio of teacher to students was much smaller. And whatever I needed help on, she helped me on. And I would go to that three or four times a week. And it ended up becoming feeling like it was a bit of a, a physical home for me inside school, where it was sort of a safe space for me to work on the stuff that I wanted to. And also just like get out all of this energy that I had. So I'll give you an example. This might sound a little ridiculous, but I used to be this really big offensive guard. I played football. I was much larger then. And it was very difficult for me to learn all the football players. plays. People knock on football players a lot, thinking that they're not smart, but there's actually a lot of complexity in the game. And um, there was all of these different schemes that we had to learn in blocking. And I had a really hard time understanding it. And Ms. Whitefield helped me on that. And she drew it out for me because she realized that I was very visual. So like when I would read a book, what she did for me, she would take a piece of paper on the bottom and a piece of paper on the top and only show me one line at a time and keep moving it down like this. And it helped me focus in on this one thing. So structurally, it was the time where three or four times a week I would go there. And then she taught me all of these tools, but the tools are really, it would be false to think that that is what made me who I am. It was really her believing in me which I tell her to this day and she always giggles and said, no, you had it in you all the time. It was all you, but it was really her. And so if that, if you translate that to like, well, how did Remind get so big? I believe that if every kid had a Miss Whitefield, then the world could be a lot better. Uh, and that's why I started it. Got it. So I want to quickly talk about football. Did you end up playing football for uh, your entirety of high school slash did you end up playing through college? So I started freshman year. I was scared out of my mind. So I quit. And then thankfully I started again in sophomore year out of some coercion from my older brother and um, my football coach. And it was one of the best experiences I've ever had because it instilled a lot of confidence and discipline. And I met this really diverse group of people. They used to call their school. They felt like it was the United Nations because you have people from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, 
um, cultures, different areas and different ways of thought. And it was this melting pot of a community. It was wonderful. My claim to fame, God willing, I do something more, more important in my life. But uh, one of my friends, I blocked for this guy named Richard Mendenhall, who ended up being a, a, a running back for the Steelers. And so oh, wow. he was like the number one recruit in the country. And they would have like ESPN and NBC filming there. And like, I was one of the, the guys that was blocking him. And he was so fast that half the time I would just be looking back, watching him dance. Like I remember my dad used to say, it looked like he was dancing down the field because he was so unbelievably elegant. But football was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Awesome. So now I know you, uh, let's, let's talk about your college experience briefly, right? So I know you uh, ended up going to Michigan State. Can you tell me a little bit about how you landed there for your college? Yeah, my brother went there um, and he went there. Why did he go there? I don't know, probably because he can get in. It was reasonably close to home, but not too close. The irony of it is that I decided to go there. He was two years older than me and he didn't like it at all. Uh, it was too, I don't want to say farm country for him, but it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And he, he liked urban environment. <laughs> more um and so I, I sort of followed him but then right as I got in he's like hey I'm gonna leave which freaked me out because I really looked up to him I still do I work with him every day he's my co-founder um, but I still decided to go thankfully and it took me a while to transition because um I had a hard time finding a community of people who are like-minded so I was very ambitious I wanted to learn a lot I wasn't really into the whole drinking or partying thing it just wasn't my thing um, and it took me a while to find my place there, but I finally found it. And it ended up being a wonderful experience because it's a massive school. There's like 40,000 students that go there and there are so many opportunities and I took advantage of a lot of them. So like I did everything from, I got to present at an agriculture conference in Japan, in Tokyo uh, and go figure, like I ended up talking about how technology can influence agriculture. Little, little did I know at the time, I knew very little about it. Um, but I got to do that. I got to meet all these amazing people. I got to learn how dairy farms operate. I didn't know anything about that. I was just a kid from, from the city or like from uh, the suburbs. And so like that whole experience is wonderful. And the community of people um, were very supportive in helping me figure out my first company, which I'm happy to talk about if you want, but I'll, I'll pause there. For sure. Um, so I'm curious while we're uh, going to, as soon as we, like, I want to hop into the building of your first company, but I'm curious, how did you end up going from agriculture to like education tech? Oh, well, you have to backtrack. I, I, I must have majored in five things. So if there's any younger people watching this about to go into college, know that functionally, it doesn't really matter what you study, maybe unless you become um, a doctor, because you kind of have to know how to like do the incision and how the, the chemicals mesh together. But um, I think uh, as a framework, what's more important for you than even my story is optimizing for learning as fast as possible and putting yourself in some uncomfortable, as long as they're safe, but uncomfortable scenarios where you learn about yourself. Uh, and I didn't really understand that framework at the time, but I tried to get into the business school and I failed. I just wasn't smart enough from an IQ perspective. And there's a different way to measure um, intelligence. I didn't know that at the time. I tried to study economics, but I failed Econ 101. I remember Charles Ballard, he would try to explain the concept of price elasticities. And I was like, what does that mean? And I didn't understand it. Thankfully, I understand economics at a basic level now, which is really helpful. And then I went, I went on to try to study three or four different other majors. And I ended up studying agricultural economics, which the reason I did that is one, I thought it was a reasonably easy major and it would let me like do all the other things that I wanted to, to study. And the second reason is because I always felt like there would be a need for food and I like food. I know that sounds so basic, but there was this concept in agriculture called farm to fork. I never thought that when I eat the chicken or like I take a bite of the spinach or you take Coke, which I never drink anymore. I think it's horrible. Um, 
somehow that has to come from somewhere in the ground and a bunch of things happen and then it's delivered to the store and I could pick it up and you can get it anytime you want at any store. And I was really fascinated by that. And so I started studying that and it was pretty interesting. And I had an internship to Kraft Foods and that's where I ended up working like for my first, well, it's not my first job, but it was like one of my only corporate jobs where uh, for two years in college from 8 p.m. to three in the morning, pretty much every Saturday and Sunday, roughly, I would stock Nabisco cookies and crackers at Walmart's in the middle of Michigan. And you learn a lot about life there. And it was a wonderful experience. I probably wouldn't do it again, but I learned a lot. Got it. So now let's talk about building the, like what I now think is sort of the initial prototype of Remind, right? While you were in college, I know that you created an early SMS based system while you were at uh, MSU. So could you tell me a little bit about that system and why you decided to create it and become an entrepreneur? You have done your research. Most people don't go back that far. Yeah. So um, Remind was actually started in 2008, late 2008. And you, you know the reasons on why I started it. The first version was called Syllogizer. You know what that stands for? No idea. Yeah, it's a horrible name. It stands for Syllabus Organizer. And so what I wanted to do was gather all of the syllabus from all of my friends, put them somehow on a website or an application and send reminders because I needed that. And so what we ended up doing was I would wait outside classrooms when students walked out I'd say, hey, my name's Brett, can I have your syllabus? And they were like, who the hell are you? And I would just somehow schmooze my way into having them give me their syllabus. I would then plug every single piece of content in. So I would say, you have a quiz coming up on Thursday at 8 p.m. Or you have an exam coming up on Friday at 1 p.m. Or you have a reading due at this time. And my brother built this very simple Excel macros that would basically check every five minutes. So I had to leave my computer open at the time. I had a PC and I had a Blackberry, which was probably before you were even born. Um, and I thought to myself, well, if my friend, if I text my friends all day in my regular life, hey, you want to go to Jimmy John's or hey, do you want to play basketball? Why does there, why is there no simple like one click infrastructure for my education? Because like, it's just not simple and it should be. And so my brother built this system that would send a text message and say, hey, you have a quiz coming up. And we saved probably like out of the 30 or 40 students that I, that I finagled, which is a Yiddish word for like, pull them into uh, using the product probably saved half of them from missing assignments or quizzes or exams. So we kind of knew something was there. Fast forward, we proceeded from basically 2008, 2009 to 2011 to grind and have no idea what we were doing and utterly fail. Like I moved back to Chicago. I lived on 25 bucks a week. I ate pasta. I was fine. Like my mom and dad were eight miles away. They would always feed me. But like I lived in this little hole in the wall with my friends. I had very cheap rent. And as my friends went and got these big jobs with nice salaries and benefits, I would just wake up in the morning and figure like, okay, how do you start a company? And like try to talk to customers and like envision the future of what this could be. But I had no idea what I was doing. All this stuff that exists with like YC and startup school and, and anything you can Google online and starting companies, it wasn't nearly as relevant back then and open. And so I just, I just sort of grinded. And part of that was refusing to stop. And so that was 2008 to 2011. Got it. So um, while you were still building the company in college, I know you mentioned you were just sort of finessing students into giving you curriculum and stuff like that. But what was it like for you to work on all the things, the college life, and then also actively build a company on your own or with your brother, I guess? It was hard, but it was right for me. And this is important. So whoever is watching this, like if there's a younger person or a student wondering if they want to be an entrepreneur, this was simply my route. On Fridays and Saturdays, oftentimes when all of my friends would go out, I would be sitting at my PC. I had a PC at the time. I now have converted to a Mac, but I would be wireframing designs or like Googling text messaging systems 
or Twilio at the time, which is now a massive publicly traded company. We were one of their first customers researching their site and Googling Jeff Lawson and understanding how the API worked. And I would be researching all of that stuff just because it's what I love to do. And then on the side, I would just get all my either homework done. And I ended up getting really like reasonable grade, not great. Like they were fine. I got like a 3.1 or 3.2 GPA and I did fine, but it allowed me to learn about all of these other things with starting a company. The hardest thing, by the way, was what you, you told me in the beginning of this talk or before we started recording, which is you can build a product, but you didn't really know how to acquire customers or grow or get distribution. And so I would go into Barnes and Noble on Grand River, which is now gone by the way, but it was old Barnes and Noble. And I would look at these startup business books and I would pick out like accounting for startups or accounting for dummies, which is absolutely the last thing you wanna do when you start a company. At least you're starting a scalable internet company. You really just wanna talk to customers and understand their problems. You can outsource accounting to someone who's really good at it. But I had no idea or framework for where to start. Does that make sense? Yeah. Awesome. So. Um, let's see, when you graduated from college, right, how did you decide that you wanted to continue working on uh, your ed tech startup and building your own company as opposed to doing what, as you mentioned, most of your college grad friends were doing, which is like getting their nice cushy salaries from like their big tech firms and stuff like that? How did you justify your risk? Early in senior year, I um, closed a customer that had nothing to do with Remind. It was another company I had called Social Bonfire, which this is at the time when like Facebook and Twitter and like the other big social networks like tumblr like there were some of them hadn't even started they were just getting started and these local companies were really interested in marketing to people on those systems and so i ended up being a consultant teaching them how to engage with customers on campus and they're like okay great we'll pay you 20 dollars an hour and, or excuse me 20 hours a week at 150 dollars an hour and like hello my eyes like i was like Okay. And I tried to stay really calm when they said, I'm like, okay, yep, that sounds good. I'll invoice you. And then I had to go Google how to create an invoice. And that's, that's sort of when it dawned on me that um, A, I can control my own destiny. B, as an entrepreneur, you can have all the freedom that you want, which actually is a bit hypocritical because you can't, because you end up being a bit tied to your company. Um, <laughs> but the thrill of being able to provide value and exchange money for that value was amazing. And it allowed me to like pay my rent and, and do whatever I wanted to do. And so that's sort of the point where I knew I wanted to do that. I also recognized that it was going to be really hard. I'm not technical. I'm not an engineer. Like I didn't go to MIT or Stanford. I'm not, I don't have a jagillion zillion IQ. Um, and so it was going to be really, really difficult. But the undercurrent, I keep saying that word undercurrent, the emotion that drove me was this feeling that I wasn't smart for a really long time. And I did not want another kid in the country to feel like I did. And so I just refused to stop. And there are so many times that logically, if you think about first principles, like the company should have failed even later in the company, which I'm happy to talk about, it should have failed, <clears throat> but I just refused to let it because I felt like it needed to exist in the world. Got it. And so I know your initial uh, prototype, which was, you mentioned Silicizer. I know you ended up shutting it down after like what, roughly two, three K users, right? Can you tell me how can we end up shutting down the initial like SMS messaging prototype? You know, it's crazy that you've done this amount of um, meta-specific research. I've been interviewed by the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Forbes and all these. They never, ever, they never know those things. It's very impressive. Um, the, what was the question? I was too impressed with you knowing that. Repeatedly. Yeah, I was just curious. How come you ended up shutting down the uh, initial prototype? Oh, got it. Yeah, so everything changed when we, we dropped our whole life. We moved to Silicon Valley. My brother had a full-time job. He moved. 
And we got into Imagine K-12, which is an incubator, just like YC. It's actually a part of YC. The guy who started it, his name's Jeff Ralston. He now runs YC. And they taught us this really simple framework for how to build a company, which is so basic, but overlooked by first time, and even second time entrepreneurs, which is to talk to customers a lot, solve a problem and build a simple product to solve that problem. And then you rinse and repeat. Really simple. If there's anything that's taken away from this conversation, it should be that. And so I just went and talked to hundreds of customers and we realized we weren't really solving a problem for the right person. The professor didn't really need something. And the, though we wanted to help the student, there was no way to actually get distribution to the student. And what it ended up being such that a K-12 teacher has a massive amount of problems in communicating. So we just talked to a bunch. And after grinding for two years, pissing away, I don't know, 30 or 40 grand in our personal money and family and friends money who invested in the company. When I say pissed it away, we weren't unethical with it. It's just, we didn't go anywhere. We had a few hundred users. They weren't super active. We ripped it down. And in the next 90 days, had this incredibly anxious sprint of building it from scratch where my brother would work 17 hours a day trying to learn how to code in Ruby. He had this, he still has this book on his desk called How to Ruby because he didn't know how to code at the time. He's like, well, someone's got to build it. And we did. And um, that was a very exciting yet stressful time. But we started totally from scratch with these principles of talking to customers a lot and solving a key problem for them. Got it. So were there, talking about your customer interviews, were there any like interesting things that you found in your customer interviews that really changed, like helped you understand your pivot and justify it? And also, um, were there like any naysayers, you know, you know, you said you had a couple investors already, or even your brother, did you all have any disagreement about the pivot? More importantly than the specific use case for us, what I think is more relevant for anyone watching is the things that I would look for that changed with the pivot, which was when we would talk to customers, which were K-12 teachers, their eyes would bulge out of their heads. They would get extremely emotive and they would talk about all the different ways they're trying to solve this problem now and all the reasons they can't. And they would wave their hands in the air like this and talk a lot. And I would just listen. I always tell our, our old product managers and engineers and designers, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. You're supposed to listen more as a good product person um, and taking all that data. And so these people, these teachers kept like screaming about all these problems they were having. And we started to see these trends and the trends boiled down to two things, which is pretty hard to boil it down to this. It sounds easy now, but back then it was very hard because starting a company, sometimes it's like really, really foggy, especially if it's sort of this abstract concept, which at the time where mine was, messaging apps weren't a thing. Facebook Messenger didn't exist. WhatsApp and Asia was just coming along. Um, yeah, so it was very early. And we started to see these trends in that teachers didn't have a safer and easy way to communicate. And so what, our first product was literally on a piece of paper. We would draw a square and, and it said, send and send later. And I held it up to the screen and I said, in this square, you can message all 200 of your students in 10 seconds. They'll never see your phone number and they can't reply to you. What do you think? And they just lost their shit. Excuse the French. Um, and they kept doing that. And we built up enough emotional confidence at that point to say, okay, there's something here. And we as quickly as possible at that point, then started writing code to get it in their hands and it started growing. Um, and, and so like, it's really a crazy experience from going from two years of grinding and like every single, every single day is a grind and no growth to, oh my God, we added like a hundred users today. Oh my God, we added 500. Oh, like, oh my God, we added a thousand. And eventually, and I'll get to this in a second, there was points where we were adding 350,000 people a day. And that number is, is really big. And they, they retained, like they were very engaged. Got it. 
So I have to ask, just out of curiosity, did you end up talking to Mrs. Whitefield for your customer discovery? No question. Uh, like I, I have thousands of text messages with her because she is the ideal customer. And I always preface it when I talk to people I know, like people who you know and that are friends or that are close acquaintances, they don't want to hurt your feelings in giving you feedback because they're nice people and they like you. And so it's really important as an entrepreneur to be able to build trust with them. And so sometimes I talk to Ms. Whitefield, she goes, oh yeah, that'd be really valuable. And I would say, would it really? Like, how would you actually use it? Remember, like you could be super direct and honest with me. You as an entrepreneur want to get to ground truth. Truth usually means they pay you money or they're using it. But if you don't have a product yet, which we didn't, you really have to dig to try to understand because everyone, it's uncomfortable to be direct with someone and make them feel bad about something. Does that make sense? Yeah. But you want to know so, about the real data. Got it. So when did the initial prototype of the Your Mind app get launched? August of 2000. Oh, like when it really started going? August of mm -hmm. 2011, I think. Yeah. Awesome. So when you first started right there, what was your vision for the company and the app right when you first started? And what were you trying to achieve? The vision has always remained the same. Now we've crystallized the wording of it, but... The vision, the vision of the company was to connect every teacher, student, and parent on the planet to improve education. Now that's evolved now to give every kid an opportunity to succeed. It really means the same thing. Like what we're trying to do, if you reach under the hood, it's trying to give every kid an opportunity to get to the starting line. We think we're a small but important part in doing that. I think teachers are the most important part. Did I, I didn't answer your question though. What was the question repeated? Uh, just sort of like, what was it that you were trying to achieve? And I think it was just really the vision, which is, I think what you answered. I think that was a great answer. Yeah, but it was very abstract. Like we wanted to have this network of teachers, students, parents, and schools all connected on the system talking at the same time. Like Yammer was a good example. Do you even know what Yammer is? I don't know why you would. Uh, to some degree, like I know of it. I don't know. I have no clue what it is though. That's fine. It's a social network for companies that got sold to Microsoft for a few billion dollars five or seven years ago. And at the time they were ripping and really growing really quickly. Um, and the product ended up kind of dying and, and Slack and a bunch of other companies took over. Um, but it's sort of like a vertically focused social network in that case for enterprises. And what we were building was this communication network for schools and education. And it's like, what is this thing? Like we would get laughed out of rooms when we would go talk to our, oh yeah, this was another question you had. We try to pitch some investors and say, we're building a distribution channel for education. And they would literally laugh us out of the room. And that happened a lot. My brother, he always believed in it. He is very logical though. So there was times where it was like, what are we doing? Should we be doing this? Why are we going left when we should be going right? Um, and there's always people who are going to hate on what you're doing. But as long as you have a really close community of people who believe in you and whether you succeed or fail, they just like you as a person, that's what matters and you keep going back to. For me, failure was literally not an option. That was probably to an unhealthy point. I would have walked off a cliff with the company. Um, I just refused to stop because I, I felt like it needed to exist in the world so much. Got it. So I know towards the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that there were a few points where the company almost died or like started, sort of started to decelerate in its growth. And you sort of like you essentially willed it back into existence. Right. So along that vein, were there any like major obstacles or hurdles that you faced along the way that you think were really, really monumental? Yeah, raising money was really hard. And it's crazy because current, the, the, the currency of Silicon Valley is traction and growth, which if you've grown up there, you probably know that for tech companies. And we were growing, like we're adding a few thousand people a week. The problem is we didn't understand how to tell a story in a confident way. And all that changed when I met one of now, my now best friends and early, early investors, this guy named Manish Arora. 
and his wife, Jesse Aurora. And they, they taught me, like they taught me how to tell a story, which always comes back to starting with your personal why and then extrapolating to what you're building and then the growth. And once they did that, everything changed. But, you know, my brother used to have nightmares that he was being drowned in pennies because every text message we used to send cost one penny. Might not seem like a lot, but when you're sending thousands and now millions a day, it's a lot. So today, Remind sends over 100 to, I don't know, probably 150 million messages per day. We don't pay a penny because we're so, it's so big. Um, and when we started, it was thousands, but like it was, it was really stressful. Got it. So I know um, before we get to like investing, which is another topic I want to hit on, I know immediately, almost immediately after it's launched, as you mentioned, the Remind app like exploded, right? Like within a few years, y'all were at like what, 30-ish million users, right? So can you tell me a little bit about what you think was the root cause of that explosion, given I know you didn't put too much into marketing? Yeah, I've thought about that question a lot. I think it's a mix of luck, value systems, and tenacity. I know I'm abstracting that answer a bit, but I think it would be too egotistical of me to say we are like product gurus. We're not. Um, however, there are a few core, like there are a few core beliefs we have about product, and we really focused in on a very specific problem, and we're relentless about customer service. I would wake up at three in the morning because we had customers on the East Coast that would be coming online at like five or six o'clock, and I wanted to answer their support ticket within sixty seconds or two minutes. Um, and, and like that, that ended up extrapolating itself into some of the company's culture and values, which, you know, today we're unable at the scale necessarily to respond in 60 seconds, which is crazy. Um, but we do respond really, really quickly. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. Yeah. So um, now I want to really quickly get back to the process of raising capital for you. I know you've mentioned that it was already really difficult, but I know you then ended up raising from some of the biggest firms, right? You raised from Social Capital, Kleiner Perkins, first round. Could you tell me a little bit about how you ended up making the pivot from having no clue how to tell a story? Then you mentioned you learned how to tell a story and how that impacted the rest of your fundraising. A lot of it was telling the story, A, so being able to tell it confidently. And then, um, you know, the way Silicon Valley works, it's off like the relationships and networks that you have. And so this guy Manish and a few other people they would introduce me systematically to some really, really well-valued, great investors. And they met me and they're like, this kid's really ambitious. Their product is growing like crazy. He seems pretty down to earth and he has a clear vision for what needs to happen. And oh, by the way, he's also very honest and vulnerable about what he doesn't know. And I didn't know a lot. And so like one by one, these smaller angel investors would start investing. So specifically what that means is first we would raise like 25 grand, and then another few investors would put in before, you know, we had a hundred grand in the bank, which at the time I thought was an enormous amount of money. And then um, another few angel investors came in and then we have like three, 400,000. And these are people who are very well known in, in the Valley. Like Naval Ravikant was one of our earliest investors. And then at that point we had a few hundred grand in the bank. And this is an important lesson for anyone thinking about raising money. Raising money really comes down to leverage. The best time to do it is when you have it, you don't need it and you're growing fast. The problem is almost all early companies don't have it. They're not growing fast and they need it. Now we were in a unique position where we were growing really quickly and we had some money that we raised, so we didn't really need it. And that gave us leverage. And so we got introduced to first round and they were wonderful and they let us seed round. Um, and I was an idiot and I didn't take enough money from them. They wanted to invest more. And I said, no. And then I came back <laughs> six months later and I said, okay, yeah, we're growing really quickly. I totally underestimated the amount of infrastructure we need to support the type of scale that we had. 
And then over the next five years, we raised a series A from Jamath at Social Capital, and then eventually John Doerr, Kleiner Perkins, um, and some other good folks along the way. Got it. So uh, one of the most diverse things I hear from folks on the podcast is how investors and their capital really affected them and how it sort of gave them support that they really needed. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, what were you looking for in your investors? Were they supposed to be partners? Were you looking for cash? And how did they end up helping you grow Remind? Some of them were very good at helping us operationally understanding growth. Chamath's team specifically, they would come in our office like two or three times a week and help look at our numbers and our data. We didn't understand or have a framework for understanding like how to grow. I didn't even understand what the concept of a framework meant. It was too abstract for me. And so they taught us a lot of the stuff that they did at Facebook around uh, retention, activation, engagement, and acquisition, and how to measure those things and how to build the right data infrastructure. And so tactically, they were very helpful in a lot of those respects. More broadly speaking though, I don't believe that investors are generally very helpful unless they're former founders that have founded a company in the last two or three years, and or they can somehow get you customers. All of them say that they're really helpful. And by the way, all the people on our cap table, they're, they're wonderful. They're great people. And they were very helpful in some things. But generally, my learning from it is that the most helpful ones were people like Manish uh, or a few of my other investors who have built companies on the ground day to day that I can come to anything with. And they would somehow have an answer for or introduce me to the right people. And I also knew that if we failed, they would still want me to succeed in life. Not to say our bigger investors don't. But at the end of the day, like it's about the money, like they have limited partners who are investing in their firm and they're looking for a multi-billion dollar exit or zilch. Does that make sense? Yeah, got it. So now uh, along that vein, I know at the beginning of building Remind, you said that your primary goal was not like driving up revenue and not getting like the billions of dollars in valuation, right? Can you tell me a little bit about that mindset and how that really affected the way you went about working at Remind? Yeah, it was both good and bad. I'm a very mission-driven entrepreneur. Like I really wanted this, this thing to exist in the world. And I also believe that there was a business model where we can make money. I'm a capitalist. I believe in making money. I think I have good value systems, but I don't think anything's wrong with it. Um, we just waited too long to start. Now, fortunately, we're in a great position now, but it takes a really long time to build a company. Like think about it, 2008 to now, how long is that? Is that 13 years? I don't know my math, but it's like a really long time. And we still have a long way to go. Um, so it took us a bit of time on the business model. But one of the problems was that we were at like with 10 employees adding 200 to 250,000 users a day while have supporting millions of active users. And we were just like holding on to the reins to make sure this product doesn't fall over. So it was really difficult to think about layering on services or features or embedding a business model on top of that. I regret not doing it sooner, but I don't regret waiting. Does that make sense? So where it took us way too yeah. long to start monetizing, um, I think I should have done it a bit sooner. That was just for us. It's a different world now. It's a different day. I'm also a different entrepreneur because I've learned a ton. Um, so I don't necessarily, like, it's difficult to prescribe advice to anyone on if they should or shouldn't do that. It is dangerous to walk that line because, like, think of it as, like, a train. Like, if you're on the fundraising train and chugga, 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 and this thing's, like, 30,000 pounds, and eventually you're going to die. And the only way to remove this brick wall is to have revenue. And all raising capital does is just moves that brick wall back and the pressure increases. So actually that provides a really great segue into the next question and topic I wanted to cover. Uh, now that at this stage, you had raised a bunch of cash from a bunch of like, so a lot of your really good friends who are angels, but then also a bunch of really, really big um, investment firms who, as we said, were really just at the end of the day looking for a return for their LPs. 
How did that change the way you had to think about monetizing Remind and really driving up revenue? Yeah, the scale of it given, so we call, so Remind, um, Remind has a graph. A graph is a fancy way to say, it's like a way to identify relationships. There's a bunch of people in that graph, teachers, students, parents, schools, districts. And when we raised a lot of capital, the expectation is that we have very fast and very large revenue growth quickly versus if you kind of do it incrementally and your, your revenue model grows with your user growth. I'm not, not necessarily say that's easier because I've never technically done that before, even though I'm kind of doing it now with my current business, but we didn't do that. And so we had a lot of catch up to do, which was really hard on the company and me, but more importantly than me, the company, the employees, the team, the culture, it put like kind of like an unneeded, an, an incredible amount of awkward pressure on financial uh, revenue success in a very short amount of time. Does that make sense? Yeah, got it. So now I want to talk a little bit about how you ended up moving sort of away from a day-to-day role in Remind, right? And how you decided to approach a less hands-on role and start working on building your new company. Could you walk me through that uh, decision? Yeah, that was one of the hardest decisions of my life. So in 2017 or 18, I was just emotionally and physically exhausted. And I actually think the company needed someone different. And so I fired myself. And I think that the board was fine with it because I took a shot in a business model and I failed. And I think at that point they wanted someone who had more experience in, which is at the time was a huge shot to my ego, but now it's like totally logical. It makes sense. I have no qualms about it. And so I told the whole company that I was going to like remove myself from the role. And I went hunting, which was very scary by the way, because like it instills a lot of concern in the company. It's like, why is the CEO transitioning? What's going on? And I was just real with them. That's just who I am. And I found this guy named Brian Gray, who is the current CEO. And he's great. And I had really two criteria. One is that they had, he had, whoever that person was, which ended up being him, had very similar value systems to me and therefore us being my brother and I, which was really the company's value systems. And then the second thing is they had immense amount of functional experience in scaling a company from nothing to hundred million in revenue, millions of users, raising capital, understanding how to build a culture, manage executives, et cetera. And he checked all those boxes. And so it was really great. I hired him and then I stayed on for 18 months, which was a hard time because like, I'm a very ambitious person. And I explicitly told myself, I was like, get out of his way. It's very bad when there's two cooks in the kitchen. And I was very like conscious to not be that second cook. And so I tried to get out of his way and I, I'm really proud of it because usually this type of stuff fails, especially at an early stage. You hear some success stories like with LinkedIn, with Reed Hoffman and Jeff Wiener, but usually it doesn't work. And I'm really proud of it. And I think that's a big testament to Brian too. And so now the company's on like a really, really good path. I'm on the board um, and I took some time off after and I, I traveled for a bit and I started my second company. Awesome. So talking about your time on the board right now that you're still on the board, how actively are you still involved in like the day-to-day of what's going on at Remind? Not active. And it's a good sign. In the beginning, I, I, my ego, of course, wanted to be called all the time and needed, but it wasn't. And actually one of my early investors is getting Tim Brady, who was, um, he's a partner at Y Combinator, an early Yahoo employee. He went through a similar thing earlier in his career and he was waiting. He told me like I was waiting on pins and needles for people to call me and they didn't. And usually that's a sign that you hired really well, which is good. So like uh, if you hired someone who is really, really great, you can trust that person and get out of the way. So now I have 100% trust that the company is in really good hands. Um, as far as my activity, I go to board meetings every quarter. I talk to Brian every quarter um, and it's more so like bigger strategic priorities that we discuss, like what product strategy, business models for raising capital, 
Um, but Ryan's really good. And I think he has a good understanding of the market and the culture. So there's, it's very rare that we've butted heads on anything like that. And all the operational day-to-day stuff, I'm totally out of it. There's a very competent team running the company now. Got it. Helps me so, sleep in it, by the way, which is nice. That's awesome. Seems like a great benefit of your uh, excellent hiring. But now, uh, what are you working nowadays uh, at Omelo? What, are you, what, what is the company about? So Omela, O-M-E-L-L-A, we have this hypothesis that it's really hard to collect money from a big group if you're a school, club, teacher. And the reason why is we kept seeing it happen at Remind. And so Omela makes it dead simple to collect any type of money, whether it's a donation, a subscription, a ticket sale, all in one place. It's dead simple. So you can use a QR code or one-click Apple Pay. And it's very focused on eliminating credit card fees. And so we have customers that collect a million dollars a year and we'll save them thirty dollars to $50,000 on fees. Um, and it's early, but it's starting to work. We're starting to see inclinations of like the same type of eyes bulging out of head and feelings that we had from Remind. But it's a different business, which is like a great experience. So we have monetized from day one at Omela, which I'm really proud of. Like we make money from day one and revenue is growing. Talking about monetizing from day one then, um, what are some of the learning lessons that you got out of Remind that you then end up applying to what you're doing right now at Omela? Oh boy, is that a good question? So one, there's a lot. I don't think that more people always equates to higher efficiency, revenue, or engagement in the usage. So a lot of companies, especially well-funded companies, just start hiring like crazy and it cracks the culture. Sometimes they may need to do that, but you should always have a correlation to, between the people you're hiring and efficiency outputs of, of the business. Like, is it revenue driving up? Is it your margin increasing? Is it your building X product feature, which has some type of outcome with the usage of the product? Like it should be actually something that drives a hard line there. And um, I think we hired a bit too fast at Remind. I take full responsibility for that and it's my fault. And so now we're being a bit, a bit slower in hiring and methodical in who we hire. That's one. Um, what would the second thing be? Gosh, there's so much. I mean, it's not a lesson from my mind. We're just doing the exact same playbook of talking to a bunch of customers. I spoke to 500 customers with Omela before we wrote a line of code. Um, wow. I spoke to over 2,000 customers one-on-one via Zoom because because COVID in the last 12 months. And you might think I'm crazy in doing that, but there's two reasons that I did that. One, I wanted to really understand and grok the problem better than anyone because that will help inform what type of company product we need to build. The second reason is for distribution, which is the most common thing that first-time entrepreneurs don't do, which is how you actually get people using it. I think we got a little bit lucky in that Remind was a very product-focused distribution engine, and most companies have to like work. It's not that we weren't working. It's just like the product was so viral that it did the work to acquire people. And a lot of companies, most companies can't do that. They have to build sales machines, and they have to build distribution pipelines. And so part of the reason I've spoke to all these customers is I've been working on that. Got it. So um, other things that I'm curious about at Omela is have you, uh, I don't know if you're allowed to share this because of like SEC rules and stuff like that, but are you allowed to, or have you started raising capital yet? Because I know you said it sort of changed the way you thought about Remind. Have you started raising capital now that you've started monetizing from day one? Yeah, we did raise capital and there's no SEC rules that I'm aware of. that that talks about this specifically. We raised $2 million from venture capitalists. We've been very quiet about it. We haven't publicized it for no reason other than it would bring a bunch of um, distraction. Like our customers are not Silicon Valley techno nerds. We're not helping startups. We're helping schools in the middle of Tulsa, Oklahoma, or we're helping clubs in San Diego, or we're helping in Minnesota churches. Like we're helping these customers that are all over the country. And so we just didn't care about that stuff. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, now, more importantly, philosophically, how do I think about raising capital? There's two extremes. There's like the remind side, which is raise a ton of money and didn't focus on monetization. And then there might be the, you know, there's like, there's extremist people like, I think, I think you interviewed Jason Fried, like he has an extreme viewpoint on raising money in VC. And I don't really have a viewpoint on either one of them. For my current situation in my life and for the type of company I am building, we bootstrapped it for the first nine months. And then at that point, we decided that we did want to raise capital because we wanted to accelerate growth. I'm also 33. I'm married. We're expecting a kid. And I think my time is a lot better. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, my time is a lot better spent thinking about how to acquire users, get distribution, build a great product, and constantly wor worry if I'm going to be able to pay my mortgage. Fortunately, we can do that now because we have a bunch of experience and people who trust us. Uh, but that's only from our experience at the last company. So that's to say is I don't believe in an extreme. This is what's right for us now. I will say that if we do raise more capital, it will be because we have a clear economic model where we can put one in and get 10 out or whatever the analogy is and grow in a very fast but thoughtful way. Like we will try to deploy the capital in a really, it's almost like a scientific way and not, and not just like throw money at the wall. Awesome. So now I want to talk more about like general things that you've learned along the way. And so to start off with, since you've always sort of like worked for yourself or you've worked in uh, or like you've just always been a leader at every company you've been in, right? Can you tell me a little bit about what you think defines you as a leader? Me? Or like, or like what defines a leader? A leader, sure. And how specifically you try to implement that? Ooh, that's a good question. So what I've learned. Um, philosophically, I believe that people and human beings are best suited to focus on the things that they're gifted at. And I think oftentimes it takes people too long to look inward and try to understand what those things are. I did a lot of that at Remind through bashing my head in a wall, not in the literal sense, but being wrong or like screwing up so much, realizing what I'm really gifted at, which was really like two or three things, which I'm happy to talk about, but it's not relevant necessarily for your viewers. And so the sooner that someone can deeply understand what they're gifted at and then recognize what they're bad at and then get out of the way and outsource what they're bad at the better. So what does that actually mean? Cause that sounds sort of like fluffy high in, high in the sky. I might be really good at talking to customers or building empathy or sales, but I'm not really good at operations. I'm not really good at finance. I'm not very analytical and I'm not very data-driven. And oh, by the way, I'm really bad at management just cause like, it's just kind of, I'm all over the place. And like, I don't like structure. My brother on the other hand is really analytical. He's really direct. He's really, really good with numbers. Um, and so he compliments, he's sort of like the yin to, yin, yin to my yang. Now, the, the important point, though, is we have an infrastructure of value systems that is similar. So functionally, meaning I might be good at sales, he might be good at data analytics, we're very different. But how we treat each other, being honest, being direct, working hard, caring about the mission, really caring about the customers, not doing it for ego, those are things that you can't train. And I would argue that those are the, the, those core value systems are what matter, especially if you're looking for a co-founder or like the people that you work with. Those are far more important than this. Typically, people focus on these things. Um, and so the sooner that someone is able to understand what their value systems are and then functionally what they're really good at, they should just outsource the other stuff and get the hell out of the way. Got it. So 
uh, along that line, other than product or idea, right? What do you think it took for you to build and scale uh, your companies, right? If you had to narrow it down to like, I don't know, three to five values or traits, what would those be? Um, so one of them is hard work. My brother and I, we come from the Midwest. I don't know if you've ever been to Chicago, but there's sort of this nose to the grindstone, blue collar, you just go to work. And going back to like, you asked about my high school experience. One of our, um, our, our teachers, this guy named Coach Igofsky, my football coach, he, he had this motto of find a way, like we would try to block these guys who were impossible to block in football. And he would just say, find a way and figure it out, which eventually actually became a value system of our mind. We worked really, really hard, not because it was some pledger or some banner, but we watched my dad get up at 4.30 in the morning and grind. My mom had her own business as a therapist and it was just instilled in us. And so for us, that was number one. We might not be smarter, but we will damn sure outwork you. <laughs> um, and then I, I think what's correlated to that is tenacity and just sort of refusal to die. Like so many times, logically, the company should have folded, but we naively thought it should have continued to exist. And I'm sure that there's some companies where at some point it should fold, but for us, that just wasn't the case. And then the last thing, and, and this really translates into, translates into product, is simplicity. Like we really care about using simple products because our customers are really, really busy and they demand it. Uh, and so if you look at Remind in version one, and even now, while all of our friends were off building all of these product features, because they could, by the way, because they were all engineers, we couldn't do anything other than this one feature that was super simple and solved a very big problem. And I think that scaled through the company really, really well. It also translated past the product of like when I gave talks or when we did one-on-ones, or if I would do Friday, all hands talking to all of our employees, or if I wrote tweets talking to customers, I tried to be short and to the point because I wanted to deliver value as fast as humanly possible. Got it. So now I'm curious these days, whether it's related to the work you're doing at Omala um, or what you're doing or like what you see with Remind and the explosive growth of it, what gets you out of bed and to work with a smile on your face? This is probably the biggest change between pre-Omela and Omela, meaning like when I was running Remind and now. I used to think that the Remind was the most important thing in my life. It was ignorant and I was wrong, but at the time it was. Now, um, I have three themes that I focus on. I don't necessarily believe in goals. There's just three things that I'm focused on at any one time. The first is my health. There's physical and emotional. There's ways that that translates, whether it's walking my dog or exercising six days a week. I eat extremely healthy. There's a bunch of reasons, like my dad passed from Parkinson's. Um, I found out I was pre-diabetic as a really healthy person, which is crazy. And as a, what are you, 17? 15. 15? Oh my God, you're so young. You probably don't care about that stuff and maybe you shouldn't now, but at some point you will care about it, I guarantee you. And so that comes first, because if I don't have that, nothing else matters. Like I can't show up for my wife, which is the second most important thing. And being there for her and my really, really close family, they will transcend any company. And I didn't know that in my first one. The third one is Omela. Um, and so I try to balance those pretty well. I'm doing reasonably good at it. We're about to have a kid. So I don't know if that's going to get like overly tilted, but I have responsibilities. Like, I, you know, we're going to have a kid and like I'm, I'm married and I need to provide for our family, but I also have investors and like, we have this very ambitious goal with Lomela. So I have to figure out how to balance that. Uh, but that is probably a, probably a really important takeaway other than the whole talk to your customers and build a simple product and, and thinking about what is a great life. Like too often, in my first company, I would think like, oh, we got to be worth millions of dollars or create something that's really powerful or impactful. And I don't think more money equates to happiness. Um, I think money provides access to freedom. And my priorities shuffled when I took some time off. 
which was hard for me, by the way, when I took a year off, I was like, Oh my God, what do I do? I'm not helping anyone or I'm not building anything. Um, but just sitting in those feelings helped me formulate this very simple framework, which is sort of like the skeletal foundation in how I live now. That's really cool. Yeah. I really admire that. So now what is something that you wish you had known when you were first starting out with like your company, your college experience, any of that? You know, I'm going to say this, but it's not, I, I doubt it will, um, it will probably fall in deaf ears because I heard people say this to me. I didn't listen. Life happens really, really fast. And I'm only 33. So like, I'm a little more than double your age, but it goes really quickly. Like when I played high school football and I was a junior, the seniors who just finished say, oh my gosh, I would do anything to put pads on again and go and practice field and play. It's going to go really quickly. And then if you ever talk to anyone who's older than you, like a lot older, like your grandma or grandpa, they kind of look back and they say, oh my God, it went by so fast. It's going by really, really quickly. And I'm only a little more than a quarter of the way in, which is to say that you should enjoy it. Now, of course, there's a balance to that because like you have to put food on the table and you have to eat. But like at such an early young age, you have so much opportunity to learn and to try things. And just knowing if you know how fast it goes, then um, hopefully it provides you some perspective on making sure that you're enjoying it. So that translates. What does that translate to? I work a lot. Like I wake up every morning at 4.30, I'm working by five. Now that's not some, some token of like perfection, but that's what I like to do. Um, and then after like three or four hours of work, I'll go on a hike with my dog for probably like 45 minutes or an hour, just because I love doing it. And it's very refreshing for me. Um, and I, it's like really fun. And I don't want to sit in front of a computer for 16 hours a day. I probably sit in front of a computer for 14 and a half hours a day. Um, so that is what I would say to someone to that question. Got it. So now one of my final questions for you, one of the final three I have is that now that Remind is so incredibly popular, right? What is, what are, what are like some of the responses you get from people who you meet and they say like, oh, hey, I use Remind. You created that thing. That's super cool, right? What is your reaction to that? It feels really good. There's no better feeling when you build something for someone and it impacts their lives, either in a narrow or deep way. The deep ones are incredible. I'll give you a story. Um, five years ago, I think the parent was serving in Iraq and a kid was having trouble in school. And after two years, the parent came home from Iraq and the parent was totally caught up on his kid's education because every week they would have uh, chat conversations over Omela talking about the kid's issues and problems and engagement. There's a lot of correlation and research that talks about increased parental involvement leading to higher student outcomes. So there's stories like that, that is like, it's all worth it. There is no better feeling in the world that is a better feeling than money. Um, and then there's just like, oh, your wife's cousin's cousin is a teacher and oh my God, they use it. And that's really cool. And that's just like embarrassingly flattering and great. And I always tell them if they have an issue, they can just come talk to me. But as a builder and as an entrepreneur, it's really fun to see someone use your product. And you know this, like you, you started something like when someone pays you money for it, but almost more importantly, when they, when they use it, it's like, wow, I created something from nothing. And sometimes by the way, like when I wake up in the morning, um, and I'm making coffee and I'm kind of feeling like down. It's not perfect every day. I'll tell my wife, it's like, okay, got to go create something out of nothing. You literally create something out of thin air, but then somehow in 10 years from now, it's this massive snowball that's affecting millions of people. If you're lucky. Got it. And so now one of my final questions is if you were a teenager back to being a teenager during these crazy times, right. And COVID included, what would you build? How would you make money? Right. If you were still in college. Uh, what would you be working on? 
I have no idea. You know way better than I do. I'm old enough where I don't even use Snapchat anymore. That's the honest truth. The framing I would use, though, if you are ambitious and if you want to build something, um, I would, A, try to be very observant of the problems that I and all of my friends are having or the things we are doing. And I would just look for trends in those things. And I would talk to all of my friends to try to understand what they're doing and if they're having problems. And then after I did that, and if I identified one of those, I'll have this little piece in my chest. Can you see it? Where it might be a little insecurity in me saying like, oh, I'm only 15. I probably can't do that. I would call BS on that. And I would go fight tooth and nail to figure it out on how to do it. Whether it's using a no, no code website or teaching yourself how to code or walking to your neighbors and selling them a product. It's really important that you put yourself in uncomfortable situations. As long as you're safe, I keep saying that, like you don't wanna do something like unethical or illegal, but putting yourself in uncomfortable situations so you learn as fast as humanly possible. I think Charlie Munger had, or maybe it's Warren Buffett that you wanna be a learning machine. And so um, in my early days, before Remind, I had this internship and I worked behind a, a kitchen flipping hamburgers. And the chef told me that the second you learn everything you can at this restaurant, you should go leave and learn more. And I didn't understand it because I was like, what do you mean I'm getting paid well here? Why would I want to do that? The, the future impact on your emotional health and your wealth, literally money, like the amount of money that you have, I think there's a direct correlation between your learning curve. And so if you take a sacrifice in your pay cut now, um, and you are optimizing for learning in 10 years from now, I strongly believe that you will be in a way better position. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Got it. So now my final question is, uh, what is your favorite number? And because I think every number does have some form of significance behind it, uh, where'd you, how'd you end up with that being your favorite number? Why do you think numbers have a form of significance? Do you have a reason for that? I don't that? know. Just every, every number I've sort of, like my email is, it ends in four numbers. And each of those numbers combined means something very special to me. It's one of the numbers of the houses I've lived at, right? Uh, anyone I talk to, if I ask them, how'd you end up at this number? It's like their birthday. It's uh, like a sum of some special numbers to them, right? I just feel like everyone has a story. Good question. 74. Where'd that come from? My football number. Ah, gotcha. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah, you're right. There's significance to it. I will never forget it. I have my jersey and um, it was my first email. It was like Armcow 174 or something like that. But 74. All right. So, you know, I think that brings us to a nice close. Nice, like, wholesome close. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I wanted to thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the podcast and talk with me. You're welcome. It was so great to meet you. Absolutely.